Today we're going to look at the conversion of Paul. Um, and we'll look at the account, Acts 9, as you know. Um, um, last week we looked at the expansion of the, the New Testament church. And today we'll see the conversion of the man who had much to do with the expansion of the church. So let's open in prayer and uh, we'll look at this together this morning. Holy Father, thank you again for enabling us to even get out of bed this morning and um, walk or drive into this place of worship. We are a grateful people. We thank you that uh, we're able to worship. We thank you that we have a place to worship. And we thank you also that um, life itself, not only corporately but individually as believers, um, is to be worshipful because of what we have received from you according to your grand, ultimate, eternal grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, May this be an edifying time for all, glorifying to you, and may you prepare our hearts and all those who will be on their way in the next hour to worship, Lord, to receive um, your word today, that we might know you more greatly, more deeply, more intimately, and see with clarity the depths to which you have condescended to reach sinful mankind with the gospel and to convert them, not unlike the one we're about to look at, the Apostle Paul. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus uh, has to rank uh, amongst one of the most magnificent or most important events in all of church history, or just history for that matter, uh, because without Paul, there would virtually be no New Testament, if you think about it. He wrote the majority of it. Without the Apostle Paul, there would be no worldwide church. This, of course, is according to the providence of God, according to the sovereignty of God. And without Paul, there would be no Augustine, no Luther, and for that matter, Wesley, all of whom were uh, greatly influenced by the epistle of, of Paul to the Romans. God transformed their lives. So here's a very significant person um, in redemptive history. And as, as Luke records Acts, um, we can see that one of his purposes for writing is to provide a defense for the apostolic authority and position of the Apostle Paul that he has indeed been qualified as an, an apostle, an authentic apostle of the Lord, uh, because there were certain requirements for the apostles. Number one, they had to have been a direct disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, they had to be an eyewitness of his resurrection. And thirdly, they were required to have been called personally by Christ into that apostolic role, that position of ministry. And as you know, in the Old Testament, um, prophets of God um, had to verify their call through the circumstances of the call. Right? We read about Isaiah being called. We read about Jeremiah being called. We read about these great apostles or these great prophets of God um, being personally called 
by God, directly appointed by the Lord. So the New Testament agent of God um, also was to declare that he himself was directly called by the Lord. So Luke is providing this defense for the Apostle Paul and his apostolic role. Now, as you know, Paul was not um, a disciple of Jesus, as were the twelve. Um, even uh, Matthias, who replaced Judas, was a direct um, disciple of Christ. That was one of the qualifications. Even when they threw lots or you know, cast straws, they had to be a follower of the Lord, a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And they also had to be an eyewitness of his resurrection um, in the same manner that you know, the other disciples were. So Paul didn't come about as an apostle in, in the normal standard way. But nonetheless, he's directly called by God into this position as we, we shall see. So he doesn't meet two of the qualifying marks of, uh, of apostle as the others do. But we do know that he recert, received personal in an immediate call from Jesus Christ himself. I mean, we're all on board with that, amen? <laughs> okay, so we'll look at the, the account here. Um, so Luke, as we can see, is very proactive in this long account that defines um, this man's call into the ministry and his qualification as apostle. And he introduces us to, to Paul, um, although we have been introduced um, in an earlier account in chapter 7. We'll touch on that briefly a little while, but let's look at this account in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do, what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened. Now, Luke provides for us not this one solitary account here of his conversion, but we also see it in Acts 22. We also see it in Acts 26, and even more details are given to us there. Um, We see in those accounts that the entourage for which he traveled was also knocked to the ground. They were all knocked to the ground, but only Paul saw the vision. Um, We also know, and I think it's chapter 22, that Jesus said to Paul as he recounts the story, it might be chapter 26 before Agrippa, one or the other, he said, Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. (laughs) And a goad is it was like a cattle prod, and uh, oftentimes farmers would put a sharp point, a goad, uh, attach it to the ox cart, so if they kicked and were restless, they began to kick back, they would kick against this sharp, pointy goad. Hopefully to stop. You would have to be a fool to keep kicking. Amen? (laughs) Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. To fight against this sovereign God, you're a fool. Later, Paul is confirmed in Jerusalem as a true apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Paul, in many respects, is uh, the most important figure in church history other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, no doubt. And he's persecuting the church. He's the number, he is enemy number one. The most hated, reviled, feared man of the Christian community um, at this time for the most part. So there's three lines of thought that we're going to follow this morning. Number one is we're going to look at Paul the persecutor. And then secondly, we're going to look at, at Paul, the accosted one, or the arrested one. <laughs> right? He's apprehended by Jesus himself. And then we're going to see Paul the Christian. Just like that. Converted. Converted. So first, let's look at Paul the persecutor. He's on the road. He has documents in hand. He received these from uh, the Sanhedrin, the the high priests, and the priests associated with him, um, uh, to have the authority to go into Damascus and arrest all those who were Christians. These are Jews that he he would go to arrest. They've forsaken the faith, if you will, Judaism. They've accepted and acknowledged this Jesus Christ, this Jesus who they believe is the Christ, as Messiah. And uh, he intended with murder in his heart, with murderous intent, to arrest these folks and bring them bound back to Jerusalem. That's what he's doing. And he's met by the Lord. And he addresses him, Saul, Saul. What is there, 20 times in Scripture that God calls someone by by their name twice? (laughs) Right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He hears him. We read in in, uh, a later account, he hears in the Hebrew language, God speaking to him in the Hebrew language. In other words, I know everything about you, Saul. Saul, Saul. I know everything about you. I know who you are. I know what you are. I know what you're about. And I know that you're persecuting me. 
Not my church, but me. That's what he said. Why do you persecute me? So here's this dramatic, sudden, watershed moment of not only Paul's life, but uh, the life of the church itself. So in the life of this growing little community, this fledgling community of believers, uh, this, this spiritual bully is uh, coming into town to arrest people who profess the name of Christ. So many people ask in the conversion of Saul, you know, is this, is this the template for conversion? <laughs> right? Is this the standard of conversion? Now, we also know of other dramatic um, accounts of other dramatic conversions in um, Scripture. We know of Cornelius in the next chapter, chapter 10, how he was dramatically converted. And uh, the vision that was given to Peter, the vision that was given to Cornelius, the providential um, care and provision of God himself um, in bringing that man to faith. We think of the uh, Philippian jailer in Acts 16, right? There's an earthquake and... You know, the jail is open, and, and all this dramatic type of events taking place. And, you know, this conversion is very different. It's not the norm. Because there's other, you know, quieter conversions that we read about um, in Scripture. So, you know, be it Lydia, um, she's in the side of a river with some women praying, right? Seeking God. To some degree, you know, and, and she's converted when she hears the truth about Jesus Christ. The Ethiopian eunuch, you know, he's traveling with a little caravan and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah and God sends Philip to the side of the caravan and he's reading. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Which is a good question for Christians, by the way. <laughs> Amen. Do you understand what you're reading? Do you understand the, you know, the context of the scripture that you're reciting? You know, the meaning of the word is the meaning of the word. So do you understand? He goes, how will I know unless someone explains it to me? And what was he reading from, beloved? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. The fulfillment of, of course, is Jesus Christ. So, not all conversions are quite the same, are they? Now, here, here is Saul, a very unique conversion, a call by God. This isn't the first time we meet Saul of Tarsus. He was introduced um, by Luke earlier in chapter 7 at the death of Stephen, where they stoned Stephen to death. And here's the, the Saul, uh, a Pharisee of Pharisees, consenting to his death, consenting to this violence, and they laid their coats at the feet of a man named Saul. And now he's dragging men and women literally, or that's his intent, from their homes. Um, and as he has done that in the area of Jerusalem and those that have done that, it has caused the church to, to split like the four winds. And many Jewish believers fled to Damascus. Saul knows this, so now he's en route to that very place. So he's acquired from the high priest these letters uh, to take to the synagogues, the place where Jews would meet to worship. It was a somewhat um, large community in Damascus uh, that we're meeting at this time. And he's going to bring them bound for trial. And perhaps, who knows, Luke says he had murderous thoughts to even have them executed. 
Here's a man, a persecutor of the church, opposing Jesus Christ. He was born in Tarsus, right? A principal city of Cilicia. It's on the south coast of Turkey. And he undoubtedly absorbed much of the Greek culture. I mean, he, he pens the New Testament in Greek. Um, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He is a uh, privileged Roman citizen. Anyone who was a Roman citizen could not be arrested, could not be crucified, could not be um, crucified um, with the exception of treason. And that's why he uses his leverage when he's arrested later on in Acts to say, hey, when they were spreading out his back to be whipped, what did he say? He turned to the centurion and he says, hey, bud. He goes, it's not lawful um, to, to whip a Roman citizen, is it? <laughs> and he's like, ay, ay, ay. Or actually, he was Roman. He wouldn't have said, ay, ay, ay. <laughs> so, so he gets out of that, and he uses it as leverage. And then you know, his Hebrew heritage and his Roman citizenship would be used together by God to bridge the gap between the Greek and the Hebrew culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the providence of God. Amen? Awesome. Awesome. So he's a Jew of Jews. He's a Roman citizen. And if you remember, he, he describes himself in Philippians 3 as a Pharisee of what? Pharisees. He grew up in Tarsus, a university city rivaled only by that of Alexandria and Athens. Although he, all of his religious education was there in Jerusalem. We also read that in uh, Acts 22 and 26. He studied at the feet of the Rabbi Gamaliel, who was the grandson of Rabbi Hillel, who invented Phariseeism. So here he is, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Historians say that Paul, by the time he was 21 years of age, had the equivalent of, of two doctorate degrees. Two PhDs by the time you're 21. We know, Scripture tells us, that he exceeded all his contemporaries in that day. So it's quite possible that Saul of Tarsus was not only in Jerusalem at the time of the stoning of Stephen, but was also there for the high days of the year, amen, during the time of the ministry of Jesus himself, because they were about the same age. I think about that often. How many times did this man see Jesus Christ? And here's Jesus, the sovereign one. That will be the Apostle Paul. That's amazing. Because you would think as devoted as he was that he would have indeed been there for the, the high feasts of the year. And Philippians 3 says, with regard to the law, he regarded himself as blameless. So, here's a man, zealous, a zealous Pharisee, bound for Damascus, letters in hand, murderous thoughts in his mind. So he makes this 150-mile journey. It would have taken him six days <clears throat> because he simply offended by the gospel. The lengths that people will go who are offended by the gospel. Amen? <laughs> He's offended. And what is, about, what is it about the gospel that offended this man so much? It's Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. And he alludes to this in Galatians. It's a text that says, Cursed is the man who hangs upon a tree. 
So here's a Pharisee of Pharisees, a highly educated man, very religious, very zealous for his religion. He says, you're going to tell me that our Jewish Messiah is someone who was crucified and is rumored now to have risen from the dead? Are you kidding me? The scripture says, Yahweh says, cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. And you're going to tell me he's Messiah? That is blasphemous. That's what he thinks. That's a blasphemous thought. And he eventually, of course, would see that indeed the Christ came to be cursed, to become a curse, to be hanged upon a tree, to be nailed to a tree, and to die upon a tree. And that he indeed bore the judgment that Paul's sin deserves, that my sin deserves, and that your sin deserves. That's what he would come to see, but at this point, that's heresy. It's heresy. So he sees at this point that Judaism, my religion, it needs to be cleansed. And I'll clean it up. So there he goes. So he has an entourage with him. So that is Paul the persecutor en route to Damascus, 150 miles away from Jerusalem. And then Jesus apprehends him. He's arrested by blinding light. Imagine that. Acts 22 and 26 tells us that it was actually high noon when this bright light, so bright that it blinded him, came upon him. It was midday. And there's no sense whatsoever that Paul, that Saul of Tarsus uh, was being prepared for this moment. It's not as though he had been sitting under some preaching of the gospel somewhere, amen? And he's like, oh, I'm so convicted of heart. <laughs> Let me go ask these Christians in Damascus. No sense at all that he's prepared for this. He wasn't under the burden of sin, like Augustine was. Right? He was under the burden of sin. He was overwhelmed with guilt. Luther, overwhelmed with guilt. He was in a religious setting. He was training to be a monk. He couldn't flee from this guilt. And, and then he's introduced to Romans. That wasn't the case with this guy. With shocking suddenness here, this persecutor of Jesus Christ, the persecutor becomes the apostle. Just like that. And what happened? Well, Paul reflects on this um, many times in the course of the epistles. And he says, he says in 1 Corinthians, 9, 1 Corinthians 9, Have I not seen the Lord? Right? The bright light in the high noon, that's Jesus Christ in glory. The, the glorified Christ, the risen Christ, which will do nothing but blind you. So this is why he refers to the Damascus Road as the blinding voice, the blinding light, the voice that speaks, why are you persecuting me? And later on he would say, have I not seen the Lord Jesus? The bright light is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, when he's uh, penning the doctrine of the resurrection, he says, last of all, he appeared to me also as one born of due time. The risen Lord, the risen Lamb. 
2 Corinthians 4, God, he says, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Most likely referring to this particular incident. Not a stretch, would you say? I don't think so. The light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ on this day. Galatians 1, he said, It pleased the Lord to reveal his Son in me. Not to me, as some translations put it, but in me. (laughs) In me. So what's taking place here, Paul says, was something not just external, but it was blinding. It was a blinding light. It was the voice of Jesus Christ himself that transformed me from within. This is an internal thing. Yeah, I got knocked to the ground. Yeah, my boys got knocked to the ground. I'm the only one that heard the voice. Right? When you heard the voice of God in your conversion, I don't care if you were young. Okay, you didn't hear perhaps the audible voice like he did. (laughs) But you heard the pressing conviction of the Spirit of God upon your heart, amen? The same voice, it's the same person. Same kind of of conversion as far as the end result goes. It's just the circumstances are a bit different. So Christ is being revealed to him. Christ has been revealed to you. So here now, he's becoming aware of his true identity now. The identity of Jesus. Who he is. Not merely who he declared to be, but who he is. The Messiahship of Christ. The Lord of glory. The King of kings. There's no place to go but down when he confronts you. Amen? No place to go but down. You want to mock God, not, not, not the church, but the world wants to mock God. Like John Gotti said, ah, when I see Jesus, I'll spit in his face. Bro, Bo, I hope you repented. I hope you repented. And he, he died on a jail cell floor, gripping a bed, dying of cancer, refusing medical care, thinking somehow that his suffering would atone for what he's done. And if he died like that, he missed it. Right? Because the first person you see when you die is Jesus Christ like this. (laughs) Believer or unbeliever. Going to spit in his face. So he's becoming aware of the true identity of Jesus. This is what's taking effect in the inner recesses of this man's heart. So he hears the voice of the man he thought was dead. He hears the voice of the man he thought had been crucified. Yeah, there was rumors that he raised from the dead, but I refuse to believe that, and I'm going to kill anybody who proclaims such a thing. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Here's the reality of the resurrection, amen, for this man. This is why it makes such sense that in his epistles, the resurrection becomes the dominating idea of this apostle. Amen? After due time, me, one is born out of due time, he appeared to me right here on this road. He's regenerate, born again. And then it's interesting that Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Amen? He doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting me? You mess with my people, you mess with me. I have union with my people. When you're persecuted, it's Christ who's being persecuted. 
Those scattered from Jerusalem to Damascus was because of the persecution of Jesus Christ. So he begins to realize here what he's been doing as he's confronted by Christ. And when we were confronted by Christ, we began to realize what sin really was, what sin really is, the consequences of sin and who we're sinning against. Amen? And when we sin now, we realize we're sinning against him. And he's the one who's atoned for and paid for and made us right. The very reason that we can boldly become, come before the throne of grace and ask for forgiveness and confess our sins and, and trust in the promise that we're cleansed. Amen? So this is all the Lord's doing here. This has nothing to do with Saul, amen? This is no seeker of Jesus. This is the hound of heaven seeking him down, right? Jesus seeks out the sinner. So, breathing threats, having murderous thoughts against Christians, God arrests him. God steps in. And Paul would go on to say that it pleased the Lord to reveal his son in me. So he wasn't seeking after Jesus as, you know, the, as the Ethiopian eunuch was. Or as Lydia was with the gals down by the river, praying. They had a little prayer meeting down there. And then Paul and the boys meet up with them and declare the whole gospel. The only thing Paul was seeking was the blood of those who were of the way. So God arrests him. It's very sudden, it's dramatic, which is very encouraging, by the way, for anyone who has loved ones who are radically rebellious against God. You pray for them, you pray for them, or you pray for them, it seems the further and harder, the further away from God they get and the harder their heart is, amen? Never give up hope. Never give up praying. If he can, he can convert anybody. I even hate saying that, if he can. He can do anything he wants, when he wants, how he wants. But let's just say, because of my own ignorance and our ignorance, if he can convert Saul of Tarsus, he can convert anybody you're praying for. I don't care how hard they are or seem to be. No matter how hostile they are towards God or how, how hostile they are towards you, we just we look at accounts like this, and we, we see that we need not give up praying for these people. I mean, would, would you ever think that if you knew Saul of Tarsus before this, that, that you would think that he's going to become the chief apostle of the New Testament? Would you think that? Of course not. There's no way. And then imagine witnessing this. The instant that the Lord did this. I mean, all of a sudden, God steps in. Out of nowhere. As he did then, he can do now. What he did in the first century, he can do now. Amen? He can do now. Never doubt that. He can step in. I told you about my nephew. I've been, my nephew's going to a church today that I told him to go to, and he's going to inquire about baptism. I go, dude, you need to be baptized because you're a believer now in Jesus Christ. That dude's converted. I told you he took a nap unsaved and woke up saved. <laughs> That's what it was. That's what it was, man. He hasn't lost his first century power, amen? He can step in and convert 
regenerate, turn around, bring to himself who he wills, when he wills, how he wills. People are helpless. If they're elect, they are helpless to continue to fight against God when that time comes. So Paul is rendered helpless here. He's blind. This is a fire-breathing Pharisee, a religious, outwardly upright, morally upright, zealous persecutor of the one true God. So now, blinded, he has to be led by his entourage by hand into Damascus. He's like a blind little boy. He's helpless. In the twinkling of an eye, God humbles him. Brings him down from his lofty arrogance, breaks him to nothing. All his defiance and all of his hatred to God, he only has one response. Lord, what would you have me to do? That's what he says in chapter 22. Lord, what would you have me to do? So many people want to debate, well, when exactly was he, you know, converted? Was it here at this moment? Was it later in the house on the street called straight? He's converted now, man. Right? And that leads us to Paul the Christian. Paul of Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus is now a Christian, and the Lord will rename him Paul. Once a persecutor, now apprehended by Jesus Christ, and he's transformed into someone who's of the what? The way. The very people that he's persecuting. Blinded. So as far as Luke is concerned, he, he simply wants to tell us the story, whereas once this man was blind, now he sees, though he was made blind physically. He's made blind, but now he sees. He's made blind physically and now sees the truth. And he says, who are you, Lord? Verse 5, that tells us something about when his conversion took place. Amen? Who are you what? Lord. And then we're introduced for a brief moment to this faithful brother in the Lord by the name of Ananias. This is not the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira, by the way. This is another Ananias altogether. A wonderful, extraordinary disciple of Jesus Christ. Devout, full of the Spirit. Great man of God. One of those who uh, were of the way. One of those in that, this small little group being persecuted. Living up there in the area of Damascus. And, and, and imagine God coming to you, right? Let's say we're under persecution and, and there's someone that's super famous that is a persecutor of the church. And God comes to you and he says, I want you to go to that man. He's a chosen vessel of mine and I want you to pray for him. Come on, are you kidding me? So Ananias responds, Lord, this is the guy that does this and does this and has a reputation for this as though God doesn't know, right? So it's perfectly understandable why Ananias says, Lord, you know, I think you made a mistake. And then he recounts the story of this man. But once he's assured by God, God assures him of what, he, what he's calling him to do. He, he's prepared now to do whatever God asks him to do. So he goes to this house of a man named Judas on Straight Street. 
He says, in that house, on that street, there's a man and he's praying. Yeah, it's the fire-breathing Pharisee named Saul. And notice the first words of Ananias. What does he say to, to Paul? What does he say? First word. Brother. <laughs> Brother. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came. Okay, that's the road in which you enter town. And you had intent to persecute those that are of the way on that road. And he arrested you. He has sent me to you that you may regain your sight, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So obviously the early signs of salvation that are met by Ananias here. Verse 11 It's a man who's praying to the one true God. Now, a lot of people pray, but when you're truly converted, you begin to pray to the one true God. And he's praying. It's the sure mark of a true disciple. So, this is the very sign that Ananias needed to assure him that this man, breathing threats of murder, is genuinely converted. And there he is praying to God. And then secondly, he's baptized. That's an extraordinary thing. Somebody becomes a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, they need to be baptized. That's what Scripture says. It's an outward testament. We're going to have baptisms here today, after service, before the benediction. People will make a public profession of their faith, identifying in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Publicly identifying with witnesses of the body of Christ. Amen? And we get to celebrate in that. So he's baptized. It's the symbol of union and communion in Jesus Christ that is now applied outwardly. Identified with with the community of faith who belong to Jesus Christ. So he he receives now the mark that symbolizes forgiveness of sins, union with Christ, adoption into the household of the family of God, and of course the certainty of the resurrection. Notice verse 19, he took food and he was strengthened. And for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. So now the people he wanted to kill, he's fellowshipping. He's at the home group (laughs) on Wednesday night. (laughs) Right? So he's received into the community this little scattered church, many of whom have come from Jerusalem. Because of persecution. And if you notice in verse 2, he was going to Damascus to see if he found any belonging to the way. Oh, he, he found them all right. <laughs> and he was found by the one who is the way. Now, they're not called Christians yet. That doesn't happen until Antioch. They're referred to as people of the way. The followers of the way. Pilgrims marching along the way. And Saul of Tarsus now has joined the way. And will become the Apostle Paul. He's going to be taken out to the desert for three years. Be discipled by Jesus Christ himself in the spirit. That's amazing. Man, I would... I would love to have that syllabus, man. (laughs) 
<laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Whoo, baby. So this is all the Lord's doing, amen? This is the sovereign, omnipotent, providential hand of God being worked out in due time to bring this man, a fire-breathing Pharisee, under submission to the lordship of the one who ordained all this, who would also regenerate this man. It's all the work of Almighty God. So never despair your prayers, amen? Never despair of your prayers. Never give up praying because... He's, again, if he can convert Saul of Tarsus, he can convert anybody. And later, he's going to stand before Agrippa, and he's going to say this, And King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision. I was not disobedient to the vision. What happened to me on that day, what I was commanded to do, what I was commanded to be, the Lord said, I must show him the things he must suffer for my name's sake. And all that I have suffered and am suffering to this point, I'm not disobedient to the vision. I will carry out his command. I'll do it by faith. I'll do it in weakness. Because when I'm weak, he's strong. He's made strong. He's shown strong through me. I began to thorn in the flesh. He would go on to say, I asked the Lord three times to remove it. He said, my grace is sufficient. When we suffer, we have thorns. It's the same rule. We must remember, his grace is sufficient. He'll carry us through. He'll enable us through. We don't know why it's happening. We don't know... Uh, why people come up against us. We don't know why this happens. We don't know why that happens. We don't know why we have sickness. We don't know why, you know, this ongoing sin that I struggle with, His grace is sufficient. Amen? Amen. And to the very end, He will proclaim the very truth He was told to proclaim until He faces Nero and He's beheaded. And He writes... His last letter, knowing his time is coming to an end. And he'll say, The Lord has stood by me. The Lord has strengthened me. So that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He didn't say into his house at the end of the day, amen? <laughs> he will bring me safely into heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. I'm being poured out is a drink offering. To the end. Faithful not disobedient to the vision. That's amazing grace. Amen? Paul was given a vision of the third heaven. First heaven represents you know, the blue sky and the clouds. The second heaven represents the planets and the stars. And the third heaven in the Bible refers to the very presence of God. Paul, in all of his sufferings, perhaps when he was left for dead, having been stoned 
and they left him for dead, remember? He, he, maybe it was at that time that he was given a vision into the third heaven. I think that that brother was gifted with the vision of the presence of God because of all the things he suffered, for no one has ever suffered like this dude for the name of Jesus Christ. To persevere by faith through and through. Amen? So there's the Paul. And uh, next week... I think we do an overview of, I think, Romans or something, which I've already kind of done, but that's okay. We'll do it again. Amen?